child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things are gonna get brighter. I've sang a couple times the last few weeks. Some have called it cruel and unusual. However, I do think that song fits the soundtrack beneath 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, and then through chapter 19 and verse 8. Elijah thinks that things are turning. We've seen the fire fall on Carmel, consuming the sacrifice, and the people fall down declaring, the Lord, he is God, not Baal. And so Elijah can hear uh, the sound of rain. A blessing, it seems, is just over the horizon. The people will turn from false gods to the living God. Things are going to get brighter, easier, right? In the words of Thanos... Reality is often disappointing. Indeed, Elijah will discover that despite the miraculous work of God, there's still a monster in Ahab's bedroom. Jezebel will still persist in rebellion and lead the people to following Baal. I think we can relate well to Elijah this morning. Uh, many of us have probably had an experience where you, we said to ourselves, you know, once I graduate from high school, then things will get easier. Or once I get married, then things will get brighter. Nobody's foolish enough to say that when it comes to kids. But maybe you, you've even thought, once I retire then life will get really easy. And what we discover is that then never really comes. Each season brings with it its own difficulties. And faithfulness in each season is hard. There's never a time in the Christian life where we just sort of set it in cruise control and follow Jesus. It always takes great effort. Indeed, it is difficult. And it will be difficult even for the great prophet Elijah as he finds himself fearful and disappointed. Faithfulness, this is our main idea this morning, faithfulness is hard. Press on. We had it in our scripture reading this morning. And Paul writes in Philippians 3, Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Maybe to make it annoyingly portable for you this week. And saying faithfulness is hard and therefore press on. But to you know, put it in your head a little bit. Um, kids, you'll know. Finding Nemo. And some of you guys, you know, adults will know Finding Nemo also. Fish movie a few years back. Uh, but there was the, the beloved blue fish whose name was Dory. Forgets everything, drove me crazy. Uh, but there is one scene 
when Dory speaks to Nemo's dad, uh, Nemo's dad feels like giving up his search for his son. He feels like he might just die. And Dory says, do you know what you got to do when you're feeling down? Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And if you're like me, you're like, shut up. But that's sort of the portable way you can put the exhortation into your pocket this week. Just keep swimming. This is what Elijah needs to do. Just keep pressing on in faithfulness. Just keep trusting Christ. Just keep leaning on the everlasting arms. Just keep praying. Just keep walking by faith. Step after step after step. Even when you feel absolutely exhausted and as if there is no strength left, keep fighting the good fight of faith. Do not grow weary, saint, and trust that God will strengthen you. Just keep swimming. That's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Outline is there before you. Let's pray and we'll begin walking through the text today. Father, thank you so much for this time we have to spend together. Before you in worship, we pray that we would encourage one another unto Christ's likeness and good deeds. Pray that you would lift up weary hearts and that you would give to us a cheerful defiance that can come only through knowing Jesus Christ. A commitment to do that which is hard because it is right and good. We thank you that whatever comes to us in life is ultimately for us because it comes to us by your mighty hand, O oh Father. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who died so that we might live by faith in him, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We thank you that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, and we have been healed and made right with you. We pray that you would strengthen us and help us to press on toward the resurrection that is to come that you would help to keep us in your love until you take us into glory, whether through death or the return of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. A decisive victory has been won. Fire fell from heaven. The prophets of Baal have been slaughtered, their blood fills the river Kishon. And Elijah turns his attention to Israel's king, who's the king in the northern kingdom, Ahab, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. This is sort of a weird command, is it not? And so we have to ask ourselves, why is Elijah asking Ahab to eat? And I think we are helped when we consider how covenants often work in the Bible. And for me, I flash back to Exodus in chapter 24. <clears throat> and there are three things present in this particular covenant, words, blood, and food. 
the people are standing before Moses, and Moses reads to them all the rules of the Lord, gives them the word of the Lord, and all the people respond, making a vow to the Lord with one voice, Exodus 24, verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses gets a sacrifice ready for an offering. He gets the blood of it, and he sprinkles some of that blood on the altar, and then he takes some of that blood, and he sprinkles it on the people. He reads them the words of the Lord again, and then they say in verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses says in verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accord with all these words. Then there is this spectacular scene when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, interesting Nadab and Abihu there, you read about them in Leviticus 10 later, but them and then the 70 elders of Israel, all the representatives of the people, share in a meal before the Lord. It's an incredible scene. And what we are to see is that the people and God have been joined in covenant, in promise. A contemporary wedding feast helps us to see basically the same thing, right? A bride and groom make promises to each other. They seal their covenant with a kiss that eventually becomes consummation, which typically features blood. And they enjoy a wedding reception, where they eat food together with their friends and family to, to celebrate their covenant together, their promises to one another. That's precisely what happens in Exodus 24, and I think it gives us a clue as to what Elijah is doing here. A sacrifice has been made on this altar, which he made with 12 stones, the text tells us, representing the 12 tribes of Israel in union. There's the blood of the sacrifice there. The fire of God falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice rather than the people. And they fall down and confess, the Lord, he is God. We've got words, we've got blood, and now Elijah wants to bring into the equation food. Ahab, as the representative of the people, I want you to eat a covenant meal before the Lord to celebrate this renewal of the covenant and to celebrate the return of covenant blessings as you turn from sin. I can, I can hear the rain already. Remember, the curse of the covenant is drought because they've turned to other gods. And Elijah is saying, the time of curse is coming to an end. Blessing is coming. Eat before the Lord. Let's celebrate this renewal. You have to imagine Ahab does not have much of an appetite, right? All those prophets were just slaughtered down by the brook, whether by many people under Elijah's instruction or if Elijah lined them all up one by one, it matters not. Uh, I don't think that it smelled very good or would cause you to think, yeah, I'm really hungry. He asks Ahab to eat. And so Ahab eats. Verse 42, And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees 
And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And the servant went up and looked and said, "Uh, there's nothing. And Elijah said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Elijah is ready for blessing. And so he does what Israel ought to have done long ago. He prays as Solomon prayed back in 1 Kings in chapter 8. Remember, Solomon says if the people sin and they pray, answer their prayers. And this is, this is Solomon's prayer. I'll read it to you. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 35. Solomon at the temple dedication. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they, that's the people, have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place, that's the temple, and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Elijah turns and prays. He takes on that posture of prayer, puts his head between his knees and is humbly praying to the Lord, bring rain, bring rain, bring rain. It is interesting, isn't it? How differently God responds to the different prayers of Elijah. Elijah prays for fire to fall from heaven and boom, lightning and the sacrifice is gone. Immediate action. Here, it takes a while. He prays seven times. I think this shows us a few things. One of which is this. Prayer is not just a colorless conversation with God. It is not static, but dynamic. We interact with the living God, and he doesn't respond to all prayers the same way. Sometimes he responds immediately with lightning. Other times, it takes a while. Seven times here before there seems to be a clear answer to Elijah's prayer. I think that's an encouragement to us that when we pray, we should pray persistently. We'll probably have an experience like James Taylor, right? We'll see fire and we'll see rain. There'll be times when prayers are answered right away and times where it takes a while. But we should still aim to pray persistently. Elijah is held up as an example of prayer. Luke tells us a parable that Jesus speaks in chapter 18, the aim of which is this, always pray and do not lose heart. Remember, there's a widow there. She's being treated unjustly. She goes to an unjust judge, asks him to give her justice, and he's like, nah. But she keeps going over and over and over again. And finally, he's like, this woman will not leave me alone. I'm just going to give her justice. The point of the parable is to say, how much more will God the Father, who is good, who is just, answer the prayers of his people? 
we should not be afraid to pray and to keep praying. God aims, purposes, to accomplish things through prayer. One of the big themes in the book of Kings is God's providence. We've pointed this out over and over and over again. Everything is happening according to God's plan. He's orchestrating all of it. He's sovereign over everything. But at the same time, he has ordained that particular things come about through the work of his people, through the work of this prophet Elijah. Friends, we need to have both of these truths in our hands. God is completely sovereign over everything in the universe. It's what it means for him to be God. Nothing happens apart from his will. It all happens according to the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians 1, right? There are no maverick molecules out in the universe. Everything operates according to his design. And we as people are individual, responsible, moral agents. Always acting according to our strongest desire doing what we want. What we do matters. What we do matters. And Elijah's prayers matter here. What, I, what I'm trying to impress upon you at this point is to say, your prayers matter. God has planned to do things through prayers that you haven't prayed yet. You might not know all of them. But isn't that a wonderful motivation to pray? Who knows what God might do in response to your prayers? James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man has much power. Brothers and sisters, give yourselves to prayer. It matters. It mattered here. Elijah prays persistently and God brings rain. And as that cloud comes, Elijah speaks to Ahab. Verse 44, the second part of it, says to his servant, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down unless the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab has to get going because it's going to get muddy. The drought is ending. The rain is coming. And so he gets in his chariot and he, he's saddled up his horses. He's headed towards his summer palace where he and Jezebel are staying. And we read this interesting line here, verse 46. Elijah is empowered by the Spirit of God to run super fast, like Usain Bolt style fast for about 15 to 17 miles, such that he outruns Ahab and goes before him. And so the question is why? And I think the best explanation I was able to uh, come across was this. 
that we are to see prophet and king functioning together according to God's design once more. The king is obeying the words of the prophet. He sat down and he ate to renew the covenant. He got in his chariot. He's following the prophet's words and he's physically following the prophet. Additionally, Elijah is in submission to the king. He's heralding the king's coming by going before him. He gets to the gate and he waits and Ahab goes in and everything looks wonderful. Ooh, child. Are you hear the soundtrack going? This is going to be awesome. Ahab has an offer of grace in his hand as he goes home. But his feet will soon stand in the devil's bedroom. Jezebel is there, and she will short-circuit the happiness and the revival Elijah was looking forward to. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What a scene this must have been. Imagine Ahab goes uh, into the bedroom where, where Jezebel is waiting. You are not going to believe what happened. We, we were at Mount Carmel. All your prophets are there. Nothing happens. And then, you know, during the, the last sacrifice, the time of oblation, Elijah prayed and, and the God of Israel, fire from heaven. It was amazing. The people, they said, the Lord is God. And then he, he slaughtered all of the, the prophets of Baal. And, you, you know, Jezebel at this point, she can't hear anymore. She says, oh, no, he didn't. You know, he did not kill all of my prophets. This rain is not from the Lord of Israel. It is from my God, Baal. I don't care about the pyrotechnics that Elijah did. He's been a troubler of Israel since this whole drought business started. I am going to kill him. Where's my messenger? Gets her messenger to him. All right, you go, you find Elijah, tell him he is going to be as dead as one of those prophets he killed, so help me. Elijah Here's of it, verse 3. Then Elijah, literally it says here, he saw, like he saw what she was doing. And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked God that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is afraid, at least for two reasons. First, fear. The second, failure. He's afraid and he flees for his life. Isn't that encouraging? To you and me, even the great 
Elijah is not completely free of fear. He fears for his life, and he runs away. He's a, a wanted man again. Remember, he's been on the run for a long time. He was by the brook Cherith, fed by ravens. And he was in the widow's house at Zarephath. And she fed him with the jar and the jug. And he did the business on Carmel. And now he thinks it's all over. And all of a sudden, he's run again all the way to Beersheba. There's a sort of colloquialism in the Old Testament from Dan to Beersheba. And it's this idea of the, the extremities of the kingdom of Israel. And so the point is, is that he's made his way into the deep south. He is getting far, far away. And in many ways, he's right back where he was at the beginning of chapter 17, hiding from Jezebel. But this time, he's in despair. He's at the end of his rope, at the, the bottom of the well. He is as a man hanging to a cliff face, his fingers slipping. He's come to a broom tree in the wilderness. And yet he has weakness enough to pray. He may have given up on himself, but he has not given up on his God. He prays. sort of layup application question here is, you know, do you pray enough? But the more I thought about it, I, I don't know that that question helps you or me a whole lot. Because who among us is dumb enough or arrogant enough to answer, of course I pray enough. Have you met me? I'm awesome. Prayed up. I'm totally prayed up. I pray enough. How much is enough? Well, that's not really helpful. I think better for us to look at Elijah's life and think, how can we pray better? <clears throat> and so I think the answer here for us in terms of application is to develop better instincts towards prayer. We want to build prayer into our lives so that it comes to us naturally. Elijah is at the very end of his rope. I'm on the struggle bus today, excuse me. <clears throat> there we go, hopefully that helps. He, he is at the end of himself, but he is someone who prays all the time such that when he is in his most desperate place, when he wants to die, he prays. I think it would be so wise of us to build prayer into our lives such that it just becomes part of the warp and woof of what we do, part of our everyday rituals. You know, you, you go in the morning, one of the first things you do if you're a sane person is you find that cup of coffee and you take the ceramic mug in your hand and you smell all those wonderful aromas and you, you, know, you suck down that Holy Spirit juice. Just, that might just be a time you turn in and say, I'm actually going to pray when I have that cup of coffee in my hand. 
I'm going to give thanks to the Lord my God for giving me life and breath and everything. Thank you, Lord, for the coffee in my hand, the clothes on my back, the roof above my head. Thank you for those around me who love me and encourage me. Thank you for this heartbeat and the next heartbeat and the heartbeat after that and every heartbeat that will come to me until you call me home. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for your purposes in my life. I love you, Lord. Just give him thanks. Pray. You'd be so so helped if we build prayer into our lives. Maybe it's with your coffee. Maybe it's for your commute if you're a commuter. Maybe it's at other various times during the day. Try this church. Just make it a point to pray regularly in a particular place at a particular time. You will be helped. We want prayer to be such a part of what we do that when difficulty comes, it is our natural reaction it's to turn to the Lord, like Elijah does here. He's afraid. He's given up on himself, but he hasn't given up on God, and so he prays. It really is ironic. He asks God to take his life away. And, and funny enough, this is a prayer that the Lord answers no to, but not just right now. Elijah is one of two people in the Bible that never die. And so he has to live, has to, he gets to live forever. He never has to go through death. God doesn't allow him. I just thought that was funny. Him and Enoch, only two to never die. And here's one of his recorded prayers. Please let me die. No, never. You're going to be swept up. So Elijah flees, not just because he's afraid, but because he thinks of himself as a failure. And this is the reason he asks for the Lord to take his life away in the second part of verse 4. It says, for, or because, I am no better than my father's. What is he saying? He's saying, I am no better than all those who have come before me. I have had no more success in turning the hearts of your people, God, back to you. They're still in their sins, save for the remnant that confessed you on Carmel. They're still a hardened people. There isn't a national revival coming. He sees his whole ministry as a failure. It really is understandable, right? We, we get Elijah on the one hand. He really, really wants Jezebel and Ahab and all of Israel to turn back to the Lord. And he's upset that they've hardened themselves in their rebellion against God. But on the other hand, his reaction is entirely wrong. His disappointment is the result of a flawed metric for measuring his own success. I think we as churches often do this. We, we sort of want a concrete way to measure spiritual things, to measure what God is doing above us. And sort of the default everybody wants to go to is, well, numbers. And the more people that are there, the more faithfully the word is being proclaimed. You know, don't question what God is blessing. And do you see all the people in that church? It's just simple metrics. It's simple math. I remember 
One time, back when I used to pick up hitchhikers more regularly, I didn't have as many people I was responsible for, and so I was willing to take the risk more often. But anyhow, I had picked up a gentleman. It was a Sunday morning. I was on my way to church. He was on his way to the grocery store. I was going to take him to the grocery store, then go to church. Uh, And en route, we drove past a church that I knew to be unfaithful and filled with all manner of false teaching. And he looked at that church, and he turned to me, and he said, man, that preacher must be doing something right. You see how full that parking lot is? And I thought to myself, how silly. (laughs) There are plenty of faithful biblical churches that that have parking lots that are full. And there are plenty of faithful biblical churches that have parking lots that are mostly empty and everything in between. Figuring out how many people are being converted is a really poor way to try and measure the faithfulness or the health of a church or the effectiveness of one's ministry. I love what Spurgeon said, pastor of a very big church. He said, long ago I ceased to count heads. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. You see, Elijah is evaluating his ministry as if he is the one who can change a sinner's heart. He's wrong. And so too are we when we operate that way. When we think to ourselves, if I can just present the gospel this way, then that person will believe. Friend, you should present the gospel. But whether or not they believe the gospel is not up to you. It is a work of God. They must be born again. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do not confuse your work with the work of the Holy Spirit. Your job is to be faithful in scattering gospel seeds. It is God who makes those seeds grow or not. I mean, think about it. Elijah has just given the greatest apologetic of all time for the existence and the supremacy of God. And not everybody believes. Same thing, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, and some people believe, and others go and tattletale. The Pharisees, who then seek to kill Jesus. We cannot give the gift of faith. And we get twisted up when we try to create concrete ways of measuring our faithfulness to Christ. Usually end up just creating metrics that lie to us. Think of it it this way. On December 7th, 1941, The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Thousands of American lives were lost. And a bunch of our military apparatus was destroyed. But the attack happened in spite of a mountain of evidence that should have caused our leaders to have been prepared for it. I'll name just three. Cryptographs have figured out a way to crack the code on messages that were being sent 
from the Japanese in November of that year, prior to the attack. These so-called magic messages laid out various battle plans the Japanese had for carrying out attacks against American interests. One of those attacks was, you guessed it, on Pearl Harbor. In January of 1941, the ambassador of the United States to Japan sent a message to Washington saying, hey, there is a potential attack on Pearl Harbor. Days before the attack, the FBI discovered that those that were inside the Japanese consulate were burning all of their official documents. It was just the, the beginning of evidence, but the constellation of evidence should have resulted in the installation of appropriate countermeasures. Yet, the information changed nothing. Sometimes Christians slip into thinking that if we only get the truth to people, the information to them, and press on them our most rigorous and cogent arguments, then... But friends, as Dale Ralph Davis says, let Jezebel be your teacher about what the human heart is like. As Jesus said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Only God can give the gift of faith. Only God can raise the dead. Not you. Your job is to be faithful, to share the gospel faithfully, and God will give the growth. Brothers and sisters, let this be an encouragement to you as you follow Jesus in faithfulness. Your job is to deliver the news. God's job is to deliver the sinner. Just because you haven't seen someone turn away from their sins and toward Christ in response to your sharing the gospel, that does not make your ministry a failure. Elijah, because he has this wrong metric in his head apparently, believes himself to be a failure. He hasn't been able to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord their God. He thought himself a failure wrongly. We, we know that when we think of some of the greatest figures in Christian history, we look to Elijah. Friends, God was at work in Elijah's ministry. And he is at work in your ministry, even if you can't see how. It's so important that we recognize God measures success differently than us. Our goal can never be a number of conversions or this or that. Our goal must be steadfast faithfulness to the word of the Lord. And faithfulness is hard. Faithfulness is hard enough to lead Elijah to this broom tree where he's asking to die. And God, in response, makes him breakfast. Verse 5. 
And Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, and we will come to it next week. Elijah is going to go on the strength of this food there. But what I want to bring your attention to right now is God's loving and tender care of Elijah. He doesn't swoop down on Elijah and grab him by the shoulders and shake him and say, snap out of it, man. He doesn't slap him around. He gives to him food and rest. Sends an angel to tap him on the shoulder. I love how casual uh, the record of this is for us here. Can you imagine how neat that would be? You, know, you go to sleep, you feel like death, you've prayed to God that he would take your life from you, and then a little angel taps you on the shoulder. Now, this is easy for me to imagine because sometimes Chelsea taps me on the shoulder and rouses me from sleep. You can tell her that one. I use that one later, a little angel. But you wake up, and there's like a Cinnabon there, a nice jug of water. And the angel says, eat, drink. You eat and you drink, you go to sleep, whole thing happens again, you eat and you drink. And you go on that strength forward. God loves Elijah. He understands Elijah's pain. He understands his disappointment. And so he comes to him and he makes him some breakfast. Elijah has lost hold of himself, but God has hold of him. God is ever faithful and ever true. He's the sure and steady anchor, keeping Elijah from being swept out to sea. He sends bread and rest. And friends, how true is this in our own experience of God? That he cares for us and strengthens us. Whether it's sending us regular rest where we just sleep because we need to sleep or eat our daily bread that comes to us every day. We, we take it for granted in our country. Or whether it's we, we find ourselves in the throes of something much more difficult we just can't get it together. We need, need encouragement to go on. You know, God doesn't send us angels. He does better. He sends to us the body of Christ. He sends to us the church. Do you realize that one of the primary reasons that we gather together week after week 
It's to give glory and honor and worship to the Lord our God, yes, but also to encourage one another. See it over and over and over again in the New Testament. That we come together for mutual encouragement, to build one another up in love. Paul summarizes that part of 1 Corinthians in verse 26 of chapter 14. He says, let all things, he's been talking about the ordering of their worship service. Let all that you do in your worship service, when you gather together, let it all be done for building up. Or in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, in light of the fact that you have been destined for life in Christ, encourage one another and build one another up. Or how about Hebrews 10? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We come together to worship God as the body of Christ, and we come together to encourage one another as the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has equipped us to encourage one another. No one in this room is suffering from too much encouragement. Friends, Jesus ministers to us through his body. So often I find this sort of disconnect in the Christian life that when people are feeling weak and weary or just terrible and in grief, their response is to isolate themselves away from the church and away from other people. I submit to you that the New Testament teaches us that's the exact opposite of what we ought to do. That when we are in the deepest possible pain, when we are at the bottom of the well, what we should do is go to Christ and to be encouraged by his body. You are weak and weary. The best place for you to be is with the Lord's people in worship. You are grieving during the week. It's kind of, you go, Sunday is coming. We talk about it all the time around Easter, right? His body was in the grave on Friday and everything was silent on Saturday, but, but the, they didn't know Sunday was coming. And now we'll say Sunday morning is, is on its way. The resurrection is coming. And brothers and sisters, that's true. The resurrection comes on Sunday. We gather to worship him on Sunday. But you should also say to yourself, I need encouraged. I'm weak. I'm weary. I feel like I want to die. But Sunday's coming. He's risen from the dead. He's given his body broken for me. And his body still ministers to me. Each member, I'm going to go there and, and I'm going to see David and Pam and Tim and Margie. And I'm going to see Mike and Janie and Tim and Jenny. I'm, I'm going to see Elliot even. And I, I'm going to be encouraged. He's going to use his body to minister to me and to lift me up. We get Christianity wrong when we think of it as a Lone Ranger adventure. 
We get Christianity wrong when we think of it primarily in terms of Jesus and me, all by ourselves. One of the most practical ways the Bible tells us that we can draw near to God is by coming together with his people in worship. You want to get close to Jesus? Attend church. Join a church. Commit to a body of believers. Encourage and be encouraged. So many of us can testify to God's faithfulness to minister to us through the body here. Food, showing up in times of grief or times of celebration. Prayers being prayed when we find one another in the crucible. Songs sung by deathbeds. All sorts of encouragement. I, I think often of saints who have passed on and how they encourage me. Still think of Dale's big giant heart, sort of, <laughs> I know what the right word is, always joking with somebody, trying to pick other people up when you would see him at the back of the church there when you came in. Think of Randy, just happy as can be, fighting for her life. Recently, this week, I, I thought of Bernice in light of this particular sermon. I used to call, you know, Bernice has been gone a few years now, but I used to, in my head, not out loud, I used to always call her just Bernice uh, because she was so nice. I don't know that I've ever met such a nice individual. And she didn't, she didn't get around well. You know, she had to sort of shuffle along very, very slowly. But she would do it week after week to come here and worship. And she would regularly, on the way out the door, she, she would catch me by the arm and she would share her favorite Bible verse with me. She said, you know my favorite Bible verse? Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to share it with you now because I think it's something that Elijah would have loved to hear <laughs> at this moment. And I think it's something, if you've ever found yourself beneath a, beneath a broom tree in despair, <laughs> you would love to hear too. This is what the prophet Isaiah says, chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Brothers and sisters, this is what God does for us. And he often does it through the body of Christ. He lifts us up on eagle's wings. He renews our strength. He will not let us grow weary beyond all measure. No, he picks us up again as we are encouraged by one another. And as we encourage one another, he comes to us time after time. And he says, I know faithfulness is hard. Press on. 
of, through, through some of our more colorful members maybe, you know, just keep swimming, brother. One last thing before we leave this wonderful text. It struck me the contrast between Jesus and Elijah. Elijah prays in despair, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And God refuses. Jesus, in despair at Gethsemane, prays, Lord, take this cup from me if possible. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The Father wills him to die on the cross. It's incredible. Elijah is a sinner like his fathers, and he is a sinner like us. He deserves death. He deserves an eternity of wrath. But instead, God meets Elijah and provides for Elijah beneath the tree. He gives him food and water. Elijah lies down in peace because of God's great loving kindness. And Jesus Christ is raised up to all the horrors of the cross because of God's great love for his people. Brothers and sisters, we can rest beneath the blood of the tree because Jesus Christ was crucified for us. We are safe at the foot of the tree. We can rest and be strengthened at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus Christ has saved us, not just from death, but from God's wrath. Indeed, even as we enjoy the rest that God gives, He feeds us, not with cake and water, but with the body broken for us, with the blood that was spilled for us. Each time we come to this table, we are strengthened by his grace. God gives us more grace to move forward, just like he did for Elijah. He doesn't give Elijah an opt-out here, notice. There's no opt-out. No, Elijah has to continue on down the path of faithfulness. You don't have an opt-out either, brother and sister. You must keep walking by faith, trusting that God will provide you with the grace you need each day, trusting that his mercies are new every morning. He will get you through. When you are at the broom tree in despair, remember the tree. And just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Church, there is a resurrection coming. The song is right. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Things are going to get much brighter in glory land. Let's press on to it.
And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provision for our sins in the cross, Christ. We thank you that all who repent of sin and trust in the blood of the Lamb spilled for them, that there is life. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that we can praise you and honor you and delight in you when things are really good and going really well. And we can give you praise and glory and honor and trust you even when things are really difficult, even when we are afraid, even when we feel like failures. Father, we thank you that you love failures like us. We thank you that Christ was successful in procuring for us eternal life. Remind us of your kindness to us once more. As we are sustained once more by this holy meal of Christ's flesh and blood. It's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen.